Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, this is The Bright Side with Technisha. A daily broadcast on real-life issues that will keep you motivated. And now, here's your host, Technisha. Good afternoon, everyone. And today is May 18th, 2014. You're tuning to another episode of The Bright Side with Technisha. And, of course, it's another rainy day in Georgia. Yes, it is. So I hope everyone, if you don't have nothing to do, just stay on inside and relax. But today I have a special guest on. His name is Jeff Rasley, and he is, he is he's a very special man. He's been, he practiced law for 30 years. He's a father, an author, a coach. He has done mountain climbing. He has he's done it all. He's an avid adventure traveler, um, and he took up his care and his time to to go to the Himalaya to the Himalayas and and see about other people, which we need to start doing. And I have mentioned that on my show before. Even though we don't think that what goes on in other countries does not affect us, it does. It affects us in so many ways because we are so privileged in this modern life. We have the privilege to enjoy the fruits of science and technology that other people don't have. And as I said on one of my other shows, can you really go without your phone? Can you go without your television? That's something that you need to worry about. When your lights go off at home, what's the first thing that you normally do? Do you panic? Or do you light a candle, or do you just relax and, and just let it brush off? What are you really doing when this technology just crash right at that moment? But anyhow, here with me today, let's give our warm welcome to Mr. Jeff Rasley. And if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to call in at 347-426-3751. How are you doing, um, how are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing well. I'm looking out over the beautiful White River here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh, I know that's got to be gorgeous. While well, I'm looking out the window at rain, but that's even that's lovely too. You know, it just keeps you at peace when it rains. I love when it rains. It calms you down. I love to be off work when it rains. So good thing I am off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's supposed to rain in Georgia, right? It's a rainy right. night in Georgia, beautiful song. Yeah, that's what I just said, too. I said a rainy day in Georgia. <laughs> so everybody, like I told them, if they don't have nothing to do, just go ahead and relax, honey. But I was giving a little, I was giving I'm a little sorry, brief description. Oh, I'm sorry, Jeff. I was giving a little brief description about you, Jeff, telling them that you're an avid traveler, that you did go to the Himalayas, and you started saying about other people. Jeff, can you tell us more about your background, though? Well, I grew up in a small town in Indiana, and as a kid, was really sort of curious about the rest of the world. Um, didn't really get to see it. And so when I turned 18, I walked to the edge of town, stuck my thumb out, and hitchhiked across the country. And that was my beginning uh, to adventure travel, uh, but I did manage to uh, make it through college and law school and had a successful career in law, like you said, practiced law for 30 years, but 
uh, all throughout my adult life, uh, I was uh, just had this urge to travel, see the world. So I've visited over 40 countries and uh, got really interested in mountaineering in the Himalayas in my 40s. And so I went to Nepal uh, several times to do mountaineering expeditions and uh, really fell in love with the, the people who live up in the high mountains because they're uh, just this wonderful combination of amazing physical strength and gentle kindness. So uh, for the last uh, 15 years, I've been doing philanthropy work with uh, uh, various villages, but in the last uh, 10 years, I've kind of focused on working with one village in particular called Basa and have a foundation called the Basa Village Foundation in which we've uh, tried to bring uh, education and medicine and, as you mentioned, sort of the, the modern technologies that, uh, that we have over here that we take for granted to try to bring some of that over into these remote villages in the Himalayas. Why? I don't think people actually really could survive wild technology. We're so dependent on it, and we don't even remember a phone number because we're so used to going on our phone and looking for the number. I bet right now no one can actually just remember a number by hand. Now, I can, now I, can, I, I can probably remember my work number. I definitely remember my work number and my husband's phone number, but if I'm... If I'm not so used to calling you, then I won't remember. But I pretty much have a good memory. But it's really sad how technology has really made us lazy, including these children. They're getting lazier, too. We're giving them so many iPads and all these HD TVs. Um, mine's are kind of clueless. Now, they, they can watch H. They can watch my TV, but I'm not giving you one. No. Why should I give a child a TV you don't work? So, <laughs> I don't understand the purpose of giving you all that that luxury. No, but well, so and most Amer most Americans could not imagine what life was like in Basa Village when I no, first either. went there in 2008. There was mm -hmm. no running water, no electricity, no toilets, uh, no radio, no TV, no telephone. They don't they don't even have any vehicles with wheels. Everything is done by hand. So it's, and that's the way, you know, most people in uh, the third world in Southeast Asia and Africa, that's out in the villages, that's how they live. Wow. That, see, that's a, it's amazing, though. But see, it doesn't bother them because that's what they're used to. See, it that does not even concern them. And that's how life should be. We shouldn't even let materialistic things overtake us, really, but we do. Like um, when we had the storm, um, I think about some weeks ago, three weeks ago, I can't keep up with it, but uh, some people were about their car. Oh, what about my car? What about your life? <laughs> what about your life? You can replace a car anytime, but you can't get your life back once that's gone. We worry about cars and stuff, and it's so amazing that we have let this entrap us like like this part of our mind and our body. And so 
But, Jeff, what I would like to know is how did you, what made you actually go from being a lawyer to getting into mountain climbing and trekking? Because to me that sounds like something spiritual and dealing with God. Yeah, well, you're right. Uh, you know, practicing law is very stressful, a lot of pressure, uh, people depending on you to <clears throat> either uh, get money back that they've lost or right. stay out of prison, you know, so a lot of pressure. And I, <clears throat> the first time I went to Nepal, uh, I had just turned 40, and my wife... Uh, said that I was manifesting midlife crisis symptoms. So uh, she and she understood how much I've always loved to travel. So one day she threw down on the coffee table in front of me this brochure about trekking the Himalayas, and she said, "Why don't you go do that?" So a friend and I went over to Nepal and got into a, a trekking group and hiked along the trail that goes up to Mount Everest and I it was just a wonderful amazing experience and where you could walk along the trail by yourself with surrounded by these huge white cap majestic mountains and no you know no noise except the wind and uh, maybe birds but completely away from all mad man-made things and outside of civilization, and uh, it, it was a great, uh, you know, just a great relief and escape from my life in the city and my life as a lawyer, so I just decided I was going to do that uh, every year, and uh, so that's what I started doing, and then, like I said, I kind of <clears throat> fell in love with the people and how they had this really simple, beautiful approach to life and uh, got, you know, got involved in trying to help them improve their lives, um, but also trying to do it in a way that wouldn't interfere with their culture. Right. And that's a beautiful, it is, it's a beautiful thing. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday in the store and it's amazing. You don't, you don't, you really don't appreciate things until you actually leave from where you are. That's why I want to travel. I do. I want to experience everything. Because my professor told me when you go somewhere like Italy, their toilets are in the ground. So it's totally different. We're so used to what we're accustomed to. We used to standing up. We used to having a stove. But I'm sure when you go to this village, these people don't have that. So they're using fire sticks and everything the best way how to actually cook, right, Jeff? Yeah, they, <clears throat> the way they cook is they burn sticks, and they have this um, this really highly developed environmental attitude, so they don't cut trees down, but they collect sticks and branches, and they'll cut branches off a tree, but carefully so that they don't kill the tree. And all, all their cooking is, and heating is done over wood fires. Now, the, the thing about that is it's really, like I said, it's a very simple, lovely way of life, but there are some problems that come with it. So, for example, uh, heating and cooking over wood fire 
causes a lot of pulmonary disease because the carbon gets into their lungs and it causes cataracts because the smoke getting into their eyes causes cataracts. So one of the things that our foundation did was we raised money uh, to buy the parts to stoves so that they could build their own stoves and then and have a pipe to smoke outside of their house. So now in Basa Village, every home uh, has a smokeless stove to pipe the smoke out, and so reducing the uh, pulmonary disease and cataracts, but at the same time, respecting their way of life in terms of heating and cooking because they continue to use sticks as their fuel. Okay. Wow. It is. It's, a, it's amazing. It's important. But now as far as the goal with living in a small village, they don't have to worry too much about maybe crime as, as much as we do here, but the only thing about living in the city, I mean, if, if someone gets in trouble, there is a source of help nearby. Yeah, in Basa, uh, I, I've asked about, well, you know, what if what happens as far as crime, and they just laugh. <laughs> they, yeah, they, I mean, they just they don't have crime, and I said, well, what that doesn't. Some you know does, don't some people do something wrong and I say well if, if somebody does something wrong we know how to take care of it I mean they they don't have police they don't have locks on their doors their windows don't lock um, their homes are basically open all the time except when it's cold there's no theft uh, of course there isn't that much to steal but you know living in a small village um, everybody knows each other. Everybody in that village can recite uh, the generations of every other family going back five, six generations. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're, you know, they're just they're very tight, and they have this really strong sense of community. So instead of trying to take advantage of each other, they're all looking out for each other. Right, but. I'm imagining something that you need desperately, such as health care, may not be available in village and and many other services are also relatively rare in villages. You're right. And that's the, you know, the interesting thing uh, in having this experience of, of being able to get to know their way of life versus my way of life in a big American city is we have all these advantages as far as uh, you know, education, healthcare, technology, um, which they could use. On the other hand, they have all these advantages of no crime, neighbors looking out for each other, this high sense of community and care for each other. So. What uh, we've tried to do through our foundation is to raise money to be able to uh, provide a school. Um, so they have a school in the village that goes up through fifth grade now. We hope to add to it as time goes on. And we, they, we raise the money for them to build their own little hydroelectric plant so they now have electricity. They have the smokeless stoves. We just uh, this year 
they finished building a water system, so they now have running water in the village. But so that's, you know, that's our goal is to try to uh, bring the things that will improve health and education uh, and the standard of living, but at the same time um, hope that they'll be able to maintain their highly developed uh, sense of community and environmentalism and so that we, we won't bring the problems that we have over to them. We'll bring the benefits. And what, you know, sort of the other side of that is that I've tried to do is by talking uh, to people like you on your program. And I go around and I give slideshows to local groups in Indiana and the Chicago area to try to tell the story of Bassa Village and communicate the importance of community and family and, you know, the old values that we've begun to lose uh, because of our modern technological urban way of life. Right. So that's a good thing. At least at least they're trying to prosper. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it's exciting for them to just get this. Like when we first get our first um, toy at Christmas, so that is good, you know, because isolation is probably there already. So, um, now, Jeff, when you start out trekking, how long were you there with the first trek? The first time we hiked along the Mount Everest Base Camp Trail uh, for 10 days, which is a pretty short trek, actually. You know, okay. normally, a, yeah, normally a trek will last two to three weeks. Okay. But you know what? When I think about the small village, I, I figure a child can appreciate. A child appreciate more than what our children will appreciate. They'll appreciate the birds, the flowers, and all the trees that, that's priceless to us, but that's something that they'll appreciate. When, like you said, we're so, we are. We're so small. We, we have so much. We got all the stores. We got the medical centers. We got the museums. Of course, we got the noise in the dirty air, too, but... <laughs> But it just—it seemed like it could be so much more attractive when you get away from all of that. Oh yeah, really. The, just a little example. Um, the first time I got to Bassa, the kids in the village had a bunch of leaves that they had tied together and with string, and they were using that to play soccer and volleyball. They, they didn't have any toys. So right. The, yeah, the, so they just were kicking and tossing around this, this bunch of tied-together leaves. And, you know, you, I think about comparing that to what my kids grew up with, with video games and all these organized sports. And <clears throat> what, you know, what my kids just, took for granted or, or just it would be unimaginable to the kids in Vasa. They just couldn't imagine the, what all of the what children in, in America have. And I, I taught the kids in Vasa how to play tic-tac-toe just in the dirt, you know, using a stick wow. drawing in go? the dirt. 
Oh, they they just thought it was great fun. I mean, it, it was delightful to them. Although they didn't really understand that this the idea of competition of trying to win. They thought it was just fun to draw this <laughs> the circles in the exit <laughs> because they their culture they don't they don't have that sense of competitiveness like we do because they have this more sense of community cooperation as opposed yeah, to yeah. ambition, success, competition. Right. We lost that. We lost that communication. Right now, people don't go outside their door and talk to their neighbor. Not like they, not like they should. But, and the way times are becoming now, it's hard to really trust anybody. But see, when you're in small business like that, everyone knows everybody. Everybody knows to trust somebody. And if you don't trust, you're going to kick them out that village. See, here you're not going to kick nobody out that community. We're going to call the police on you, and we're going to let the police on that. But things are just totally different. I, it would be lovely if we could all take our children to small villages like that and let them actually see this is what life is really like. If you didn't have it all this is what it would be like. If you was to try to survive on the island by yourself, what would you actually do? You probably go crazy right now. Probably pulling out your hair trying to figure out how to fix. Oh, I gotta find a signal. <laughs> Look, Jeff, I gotta find a signal on this island. Where is my signal, Lord? I'm about to die. You probably would have a heart attack right now just knowing you don't have that phone in your in your hand. So now that's right. Now, how did the people actually take you when they first saw you? Uh, it was really amazing. When um, the, the first time I, I got to Bassa, we, uh, we actually we had started out with a group of ten people, but only wow. three of us actually made it to the village, and it, it, it was really an amazing series of uh, unfortunate accidents that sort of picked off. Are the members of our group one at a time, and so only three of us actually made it to the village. But when uh, I got, we got to on the trail up above the village, this mm-hmm. group of men with these little homemade musical instruments met us, and they had like home, you know, drum, drums made out of uh, uh, like just a, a tree trunks with. Uh, uh, bladders over them and, and little uh, horns made out of sticks and so forth. And So anyway, so they met us and then they started playing on their instruments and led yeah. us down into the village and the villagers had built a little, an arch which said welcome in English on it and then all the villagers, 250 people, were waiting in line with flowers uh, to greet us. And we, we were literally showered and covered in flowers as we entered the village. And that was how they welcomed us. Wow. Awesome. I can't say no more but awesome. And now, how long did, how long did it really take you to walk to... Um, yeah, so you can take a, uh, a vehicle out of Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, and you okay. drive for about 12 hours, and then the road ends. And then you start walking, and depending on how 
you know, fast and how many hours a day you're willing to walk, it takes four to five days to get to Basa. So you walk, you know, four or five days uh, through the mountains and up and over high passes, and then there's this little village up on a ridge over this huge river valley. Um, and that's the, the villages are on the ridge lines uh, and usually near uh, a river because that's their water source. So, yeah, four to five days of walking. Wow. And I'm imagining that you're carrying heavy bags on you. How, how do you know how much to carry and what to actually carry? Well, because we modern Americans, even if we're big, strapping, athletic guys, are weaklings compared to the local people. So in a trekking group, we have porters that carry all the heavy stuff, the, the tents, the cooking equipment, and all the trekkers have to carry is a day pack, where uh, you'll just carry what you're going to use during the day. So all your other, your extra clothing, your personal kit, it's all in a duffel bag, which one of the porters carries. So we're only carrying um, 5 to 15 pounds, and the porters are carrying 50 to 80 pounds. Wow. And you still got the luxury of letting somebody else actually carry it, see? We can't help it. We just who we are. We we Amer- we so Americanized and modernized. That's all. We can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we. So I'm a little over six foot tall. The average wow. uh, Nepali porter is about five foot four to five foot six. These are small people, and so they're you know much smaller than I am but they're actually much stronger in terms of their ability to carry heavy loads up and down mountain trails. See, small, see things come in small packages, see. They, they might be small, but they're, they're strong. See, I'm five, uh, too, so that, that gives me confidence. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah they're like the little choo-choo train. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeff, why did you choose Bossa? Well, I had been organizing uh, treks to Nepal for a few years, and I began using a company called Adventure Geotrex. And the owner of the company is a guy named Niru Rai. And Niru and I had gotten to be friends from you know me using his company. And his hometown is Basa. He lives in Kathmandu now. But he had remained very close to his home village, and most of the guys that he hires as porters and guides and cooks for his expedition company come from Basa. So I'd gotten to know uh, some of these guys uh, by doing expeditions with them. And after uh, a, uh, a mountaineering expedition in 2006, uh, Nehru asked me if I would be willing to try to raise money uh, for their little schoolhouse that they were getting started. And so I agreed to do that, and we raised 
$5,000, which paid for all the materials uh, to build the building and also to pay uh, three teachers for three years because their salary is only $45 per month. So after the, the fundraising was successful, uh, Nero and I thought it would be neat uh, to organize a track to Basa, which nobody had ever done before, and invite uh, people who had donated money uh, for the school project to come and track and visit Basa. So in 2008, uh, that's what we did, and that was the first time that I visited Basa. Wow. Okay, it really makes it does. It makes you really think about the ideal makeshift here of of things. Boy, I said we are really small. So what did you find in common with the people in Nepal? I'm sorry, what did I find say that again please? What did you find what kind of values did you find in common with the people in Nepal? Uh yeah. Well, you know, most people in Nepal are Hindu. There's about 80% of the population is Hindu, 10% is Buddhist. And the people of Basa have their own religion, uh, so they're not Hindu or Buddhist. But the, one thing that's really common um, for most of the people in Nepal is they have a a very high uh, value of welcoming the stranger. And so tourists are treated really well in Nepal. I mean, they, they are very happy to have people visit their country. Um, and even though they're, you know, Hindus and Buddhists have, their religion is, is very different from Christianity, uh, sort of the, <clears throat> the fundamental value of, uh, you know, looking out for your neighbor. I mean, as Jesus said, you know, love God, love your neighbor, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's a f- sort of that fundamental value is is common throughout most cultures. And I've found, uh, in general, the people in Nepal very friendly, you know, very kind uh, to me, welcoming to me uh, as a foreigner. Um, so th- there's that, but th- I would say the major difference is that we in the U.S., we have a, a very high value on competition, ambition, success, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they don't. And that that's one of the reasons why their country has been so undeveloped. Uh, they right. don't have that you know, that desire to improve things. They just sort of accept things the way they are. Right. And I think that's why they're so happy because they have that connection that we don't have over here. We're too busy worrying about what this person has. Oh, they look like they're doing better than me, so I don't want to hang around you. And that's not the way they live over there. It's all the same. They see you. They love you the same way. There is no, let me discriminate against you. There's no color being seen. So, that's the thing I love. But we're going to take a short commercial break, and, and we're going to come right back. So I want you to stay tuned to this fascinating conversation with Jeff Rasley. I mean, this is so fascinating. It's meaningful. So please do not, I say, do not touch that dial, and we'll be right back after this break. 
There's only one station that will keep you happy. Blog Talk Radio. We're taking more of your calls at 347-426-3751. Stay tuned. We'll be back after this commercial break. Chances are there'll never be an emergency ever again. But just in case, let's talk about a plan. Okay. Who is going to grab the go bag? What's a go bag? It is a bag we do not have that is filled with things we really, really need in an emergency. Guess we won't have to worry about it then. Well, this is great. (laughs) I am so glad that we don't have a plan. I know. Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov slash kids for tips and information. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Only in the forest can you see this. But nothing beats the moment you see that. Cool! That's your child's eyes opening up to a world of possibilities. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. And you might just see this. Visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. All right, well, we're back with Jeff Rasley, and we're talking about his mountaineering trips to the Himalayas, how it changed his outlook on life, and he's providing us insights on how to make a living, doing what you love. We're talking about how, you know, the appreciation of not having everything because we're so spoiled. This is the way we have been Americanized. We have been taught to just give into all this. If we don't have it, then we're nothing, basically. And that's the way life has taught us, even through commercials. We just have to always have, have, have. And that's our main problem. So, Jeff, what what was actually your mission, your mission to improving the conditions in Baza Village? Yeah, and uh, Tanisha, I just I wanted to add to what you just said about <clears throat> never having enough. When uh, I have two boys uh, who are in their 20s now, but when they were kids, you know, they always, you know, want more, more, more. And right. so my my wife and I, our, our favorite phrase to describe their attitude was, too much is never enough. And, uh, you know, it's like that's, that's how we Americans are. It's like no matter how much we have, it's never enough. And uh, in... You know, in a, in a in a little village like Bassa, it's just there isn't there isn't more to have. I mean, there's only so much land. They grow their own food to uh, subsist on the land that they have, and and that's all there is. Now, right. the, the and it creates a beautiful way of life as long as they have or they're able to grow enough food uh, to eat, but. <clears throat> we do have to recognize and appreciate what our, you know, our modern advances in technology give us. The the average life expectancy in Nepal is 61 years. So on average, they live, uh, you know, 15, 20 years less than what we do in the U.S. Um, So there is this, the upside to technology and making life easier, uh, we live a lot longer. 
but of course then you ha- you have to ask yourself but do we live better you know, who who's happier right and my my own experience of spending time in Basa village because i've been back each year since 2008 is that the, the Basa villagers with their very simple way of life are happier than americans because we were you know like you said we're always we always want more we're never satisfied with what we have and so you know they're just they don't have that sense they don't have that acquisitiveness of wanting more they don't have ambition because there's nothing else to be other than a farmer <laughs> i mean you're born your parents are farmers you know you're going to grow up to be a farmer that's just the way it is um but on the other hand you know they'll <clears throat> they will not be able to grow up to become teachers doctors lawyers, uh, you know, they don't have the sense of doing something great, of uh, adding to the culture, uh, you know, creating some great work of art. So there's, you know, there's upsides and there's, there's downsides to our way of life. It is. And I love our way of life. I think we just need to start teaching our youth that this is not the way it should be. You don't always have to have this to make it in the world. We feel like we have to have this, or we just gonna go preserve. And what gets me really jealous when um, when I was working at one of the restaurants, and because I worked for the Marriott, and we had this restaurant open, it was a sports bar, and people would comment, "Oh, you don't have HGTV." So they would go out to the new restaurant that we had just renovated, and they had HGTVs, and the other bartender and I were. We'd be like, well, what were you doing before they had HGTV? I mean, really, what were we actually doing? All sitting down, either watching a black and white or either a color TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was a mm-hmm. and it was actually fat back. And that's my children still have a fat back. And you know, it it kind of reminds me on Good Morning America, and I brought this up on my show too. The children they showed a play the other day where the children were looking at a um, tape cassette, but they didn't. Even, they didn't even know what the cassette player was. And the little girl, at the end, the little girl was like, I just give up. But they didn't know how to play it. They didn't know what it was. Because we are so caught up with all this technology. I sure don't even know what it was. And one thing I do like about my husband, he will go and find those things without actually thinking about it. But when he gets those, I'll be thinking, like, he doesn't even know what he's actually doing for our children. They're actually than something that we already went through. And that's what I love. They need to know these things. They need to know this is what it was like before we even had all this. Yeah, and and I think what, you know, we're really looking for is a balance. Right. And it's, it's wonderful that we have all of these things that we can give to our children uh, and that we can provide them with this, uh, you know, all the amenities that modern life offers and the, the superior health care, superior education, and so forth, and communications that, you know, you can call up grandma uh, and you can Skype <laughs> grandpa and so forth. But we also have to hang on to the those old values of caring for each other, you know, caring for family, caring for your neighbors, and 
that's what it seems to me that in some ways technology is contributing to our loss of that closeness, the breakdown of families. I mean, you know, who stays in your hometown anymore? Everybody moves away. Uh, but so we need to use the technology uh, of using it in a positive way to stay close to each other. Use, you know, use your cell phone to talk to your friends, your neighbors, as opposed to uh, just staring at your TV set and not communicating with other people. I mean, just look, look at the way we design our houses now. Uh, when I was a kid, growing up in a small town, most of the houses had big front porches. And people would walk around the neighborhood, you'd see somebody on their front porch, you'd go up, and, you know, hanging out on the front porch was just Hi. part of being a neighbor. Now yeah, houses are des- yeah houses are designed so that the porch is in the back. We've turned away from our neighbors. Yeah. We, we lock yeah. our doors. We, we the garage is out in front, and the if you're going to have any sort of family life outdoors, it's on the deck out back, away exactly. from your neighbors. Exactly, because no, and and I think that's where it comes in at. Because see, you're right. You do have the baby boomers. That's what their life was like. And years ago, when my mother was growing up, you come try to go in the house. It was not coming in the house. You come in the house when dinner time was ready. But with my generation, I'm generation Y, so it's more we don't trust you. My child needs to be in the house as soon as possible before the streetlights come on. And I think. I think with the ability not trusting, I think that's what creates these houses like that, where they don't have the big old push. You don't want nobody on your push. Get off my push. I don't know you. Don't come up talking to me. No. Mm-mm. See, back then, years ago, it was open. It was much love and connectivity. But now it's, we don't lost that. We don't even want to trust you anymore. We don't want to listen to rationality or nothing. It's, it's really sad that we, our world has become like that. Yeah, and it's also kind of strange because statistically the crime rate has gone down. In the last 20 years, the crime rate is down. We're, we're, our crime rate is down now to what it was like in the early 60s, and yet people are much more afraid of strangers and, and you know wary and distrusting than they were uh, back in the 60s when I was a child. Uh, and so it's like it, the fear that we have of strangers and even the fear of our own neighbors, it, it's not based on reality. It, it's it's based on, you know, just seeing on the news all the, the horror stories and never seeing, you know, positive right. good stories. Yeah, and it, it is. Well, that was leads anyway in the news. We all know that. There are They'll leave the news all day with blood stories. That's what they call lead by blood. And my friend was talking about that with me. She said, if you want to become a reporter, this is what you actually have to go through. And she said she wanted to get out of it because it's never your truth, it's their truth. But I do agree with you, Jeff. It it has gotten to that point now. We don't want to trust anybody. We are too afraid. I wouldn't consider myself to say I'm afraid, but I will try to protect my family and now we're leading to where we actually have to have a weapon, even women. We have to carry a gun around just to protect us because we don't know if we're going to get robbed or stabbed or not. 
And it's sad that you have to think like that, okay, who's going to shoot me if I go outside this door? And you shouldn't live like that. You shouldn't even be in that fear. Children should be able to go outside and skip down the road all day, play hopscotch and whatever, but we can't do that because we got people out here who want to prey on children, and it's, it's been ridiculous. I'm tired of hearing the Amber Alerts. I'm tired of hearing the kidnappers. I'm on. It, it's, I, oh, honey, this makes you want to go to a small village. I'm telling you, pack up your kids and just head on out. We all... We'll do our best. Yeah, but I I do think that we over-exaggerate the danger and that if we would be, if we would live more openly, uh, if we were more open to, I mean, just, you know, walking down the street, smiling and and saying hello to people we meet. If, If we just have that positive attitude, uh, it, it moves out. Uh, it, it affects us. And the more people that just are, are smile and say hello or friendly have manifest that value of welcoming, um, I think it'll, it would reduce this fear because the, you know, the, the fear has gotten to a point where it is not rational. I mean, when we know that violent crime has been declining for 20 years, and yet the level of fear of crime is rising, it's, you know, it's not rational. It's not, and I do, I agree with you 100%. We may do be exaggerating a little bit, but, yes, I mean, it's one thing, I have no problem with smiling with somebody, but it's one thing, if you up in my daughter's face or you looking at my child the wrong way, then that's a problem for me. I'm not going to be smiling. And, and I don't think, like, for me, I don't try to make things bad, but it is the way it is. I mean, we're looking on the news and these grown men snatching up our daughters, so what am I supposed to do? Let you do what you want to do? Because for me, as of next year, I'm giving me a gun. Because if you come up to mine, I know my show probably be about news and motivation, but I'm motivating myself to put you six feet under because that's my daughter. I'm not going for it, and it's not going to happen like that. I'm protecting mine. I'm going to protect myself, and that's the way it is because these ignorant fools out here have led it to be that way. They don't want to go down the street, Jeff, and smile and do all that. No, they want to go down the street and snatch your children up or make you feel like you shouldn't be on the street at all, and that's not how it should be. I'm not going to feel like I should be afraid because the only one I fear is God, and that's, that's, that's my basic point. You're not going to put me in fear in this community, because if i got to leave this world, I'm going to leave this world peacefully. But I'm not going to sit here and be in fear of the next fool out here want to do something to me. That's not that's not right. It's not cool. I'm not going to agree with that. <laughs> I'm just not. Uh, well, you know, we our first responsibility is to ourselves and our right. family and taking care of ourselves, taking care of yeah. our family. But but we have gotten to a point where we're more fearful than we need to be in the sense that the um, the actual, the statistical likelihood of you or your child being attacked violently is less now than it was 10 years ago, than it was 20 years ago. But our fear of that is greater than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And it's one thing to be vigilant, you know, to, to just take good uh, rational precautions for about our own safety. 
it's another thing to be so fearful that we turn away from other people who mean us no harm, that we don't connect with our neighbors, uh, that when somebody comes up to our porch and knocks on the door, that we assume that they're, you know, they're up to no good, rather than assuming that it's just somebody that wants to meet us. So, right. right. I will agree with that on that point. We have gotten to that point where we don't even want to know the next person. Now, that right there, that is true what Jeff is saying. We we have overcome that where we're so fearful we do not want to even know the next person. Now, me, I don't mind. I'm friendly all day. It's just some people I will not trust. I'll put you in a certain category, like back up. <laughs> back yourself on up. You need to be five feet away from me. But I am, I am, I'm a very friendly person, especially since I waitress. So I'm very friendly, but I do keep my guard up because you never know. You never know. People, people are, we, we wear, what's that, Jeff? We wear these sheep clothing and be wolves up underneath. So, you know, don't, don't try to isolate yourself, basically. And I get what Jeff is saying. Don't isolate yourself. But also just be, be cautious. Be cautious because everybody who claims to be friendly is not. That's basically my concept. Just, just be careful. Yeah, well, I think uh, Reagan said it well about the Russians. He said, trust but verify. Right. So, you know, start, start out with a positive, trusting attitude, but make sure that uh, the people you're dealing with are worth worthy of your trust. Right. And if they're not, then cut them off. Exactly. Yeah, got to sign this paper, Jeff. Look, are you worth it? Are you a true friend? Put your name on the dotted line. I need to make sure it's your contract. So, Jeff, um, when you when you were over there, were there any schools for the children? Yeah. Um, you know, the VASA, like uh, most third world villages that have a population equilibrium uh, ha- are able to sustain their normal population. Right. Now, this, this is kind of interesting, though. Uh, there's a, a medical clinic, which is within walking distance of Basa, uh, which it's, it's about an hour and a half walk away. And when the, the medical clinic opened, that created the ability to get medicines which uh, <coughs> prolonged life and also which reduced the infant mortality rate. And traditionally in Basa, three out of four babies would die. Uh, and that sounds terrible, but it maintained the population equilibrium. Well, after the medical clinic was there, that the next generation of kids, which are the kids growing up now, instead of three out of four babies dying, three out of four babies lived. And they now have too many kids in the village. Um, and most of the kids growing up in that village are going to have to leave the village. Uh, oh. they, they do grow enough food that they can support the kids that they have but they aren't going to be able to stay there as adults because the the village can't it just can't support that many people. So that's why the village decided that they needed a school. They thought, well, if some of our kids are going to have to leave, 
then we want to give them an education so that when they go to the city, they'll have a chance of of getting a job. Um, but in the, the food that they grow is they grow rice, uh, millet, corn, and they have uh, they do have some farm animals. Uh, they have cows and pigs, uh, but they own, they'll only eat an animal for food if the animal is going to die of natural causes. So they don't they don't uh, raise livestock for food. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's a pretty good little deal right there. I mean, and they wow. and they love they've learned to love granola bars. <laughs> <laughs> I always take granola bars uh, with me, and so I hand out the granola bars to the kids because they're you know they're healthy. Um, right. They they'd never seen a granola bar before the first time I went there. Wow. Wow, I you can't no, I can't really imagine it because I haven't went through that experience. But just to think about somebody who actually looking at something that you know is universal to you, but it's not universal to them. That's that's amazing. That's like glory. I I can imagine that that God gift to you, Jeff, going over there giving these people something new. I mean, He went through you. That's your mission. Your mission was to help others to see the light and everything else. And then I think it brought in the light to you because that will bring in light to me too, to actually see somebody else's happiness. That, that's glorious. I love every bit of it. Well, Jeff, what are their thoughts on modernization? Well, the the BASA organization, um, we have our foundation here in the U.S., and we have a sister foundation in Nepal, and I'm the president of the, the organization here in the U.S., and my friend Niru Rai, who I mentioned before, is the president of the foundation in Nepal. And what our ultimate goal is to um, turn Basa, the village, into a model of development uh, to, and then to spread out and do the same things in other villages where we raise money here in the U.S. because they just don't have uh, money over there. And then uh, Nehru, his people work with the local village to determine um, what the village needs. And then the villagers have to take responsibility for building the projects running and maintaining them. So, for example, they created a school board to run the school. The teachers are local women who went to Kathmandu and got their college degrees. So they run, they maintain the school, the hydroelectric system. They have a committee uh, who is in charge of it, and they have two local guys who were trained to be the technicians to, to maintain the system, and that same with the water project. So the, uh, our philosophy is the local people have no way of raising money. Us Americans uh, have plenty of money we can raise uh, for donations. And then the uh, Nehru and his board in Kathmandu 
are all from the village, but they live in the modern world now, and so there are go-betweens to communicate with the village and then communicate with us. And so then they take care of distributing the money, uh, making sure that it goes uh, for the purposes that we raised it, and uh, they monitor it and account back to us for every dollar that's spent, and we we only raise money to buy materials uh, because we want the villagers to do all the work themselves. So they built the school with their own hands. They built the hydroelectric system with their own hands and the water system. Wow. And, and then that, you know, that creates a sense of responsibility because in many... You know, many sort of charitable projects, what happens is outsiders come in, they'll build a school, but they'll build it somewhere that doesn't really work for the local people. Or they won't, they'll build a school, but they won't have any way of hiring teachers. And so what we want to do is put the local people in charge of it so that they own it and they feel responsible for it. It isn't something that's just given to them. It's really wow. there. So, so now what future endeavors are in place for the people of the Bosa Village now? I'm sorry, what? What What are the future, well, basically, what are the future plans for the Bosa Village now? Are there any upcoming plans for them at the moment? Yeah, um, the next thing that we're going to work on is developing a, a system of latrines because the only toilets in the village are for the school. When uh, we built the school, we also uh, had toilets for the teachers and the students. But the, the villagers do not have toilets uh, at their homes, and so we've just begun discussions on uh, creating a system of outdoor toilets. Um, and the way, the way it works <clears throat> is they, the villagers need to come up with a basic plan and tell us, you know, yes, we would like to have a system of toilets and here's what we want. Then we find experts who can come up with a design and then we run it past the villagers. They say, yeah, that's what we want. Then we have Nehru's people do a budget because they try to buy all the materials locally. And then they send us back a budget, and then our board will approve it. And then we go out to our members and ask everybody to help raise whatever the target amount of money is. So. So it'll probably be a year before we're ready to actually begin raising money because we have to go through that long process of making sure that uh, the villagers know what they want and then coming up with a design. Awesome. Well, since we run short on time, Jeff, um, can you tell us about where we can find your books and about your website? Yeah. Um, my website is www.jeffreyraisley.com. Uh, That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, Raisley, R-A-S-L-E-Y. And or if you just Google my name, you'll find me. 
Uh, and also our foundation uh, has a website, basavillagefoundation.org. So uh, and if you just uh, Google Basa Village, you'll find our website there too. And my books are all listed on my website. Three of them are about my experiences in Nepal, and I've written four other books. Well, I tell you, it was great to talk with you, Jeff, and I'm sure the listeners will love this show all around. Now, um, you have a blessed one, and I hope we could do this again very soon. I'd be delighted. It's been great talking to you, Technicia. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Well, my listeners, I hope that you got a good breath of fresh air from tuning in to Jeff Rasley today. Please go out and get his book, especially Bringing Progress to Paradise, what I got from giving to a mountain village in Nepal. I'm telling you, you'll find your spiritual self reading that. It's been great. And please go on Twitter, hashtag, God won't jerk you around. One thing about life, it's hard climbing up, but the view is very beautiful. So stay Stay tuned in tomorrow at noon, and God bless you, and I will see you tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in to The Bright Side with Tanisha. Come back daily from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. God bless.